Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Service of Grace podcast and to our time of study in God's Word. This is, uh, we're continuing today our study in uh, Psalms, looking today at Psalm 5, uh, a prayer for coming to God's house. Would you please join me now in prayer? Father, as we come to your word today, we we are reminded, Lord, of our great need for you, our need of your grace and your mercy. We're reminded of the need for the help of your spirit to open our eyes to see the great and the wonderful things that are contained in the treasure of God's word and how all of God's word revolves and is centered on the Lord Jesus. And so I pray today, Lord, as we open this text, we thank you that because of Jesus and because of Jesus being revealed in the scriptures, you are a God who hears. You are a God who cares. You are a God that we can approach boldly even as Hebrews 4.16 says, come before your throne of grace and mercy in our time of need. And so Lord, as we Open this great text today. I pray that you would open our eyes to see the great and the wonderful things that are there in this text and that you would help us, Lord, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. In Jesus' precious name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 5. Psalm 5. Our study today is called A Prayer for Coming to God's House. A Prayer coming to God's house. Psalm 5, starting in verse 1, says this. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I pray, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evil doers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. In the fear of you, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. With their tongue. Make make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. This is the reading of God's precious word. I've titled this study, A Prayer for Coming to God's House, because 
of what verse 7 says. But by your great mercy will come into your house in reverence. I will bow down towards your holy temple. We must not think of this as restricted to a formal worship setting. This is actually a generic prayer showing how we must approach God if we would be heard by him and what we can expect when we do hear from him in his word. There's a helpful outline for understanding this psalm. Psalm 5 consists of five trophies or stanzas. In three of these, the first three, the first, the first, the third, and the fifth, the psalmist is standing face to face with God, only God in view. In the two alternating stanzas, the second and the fourth, he glances sideways at the wicked, as it were, and develops contrast between God and the wicked in stanza two, and the righteous and the wicked in stanza four. These interlocking contrasts give movement and power to the psalm. P.C. Craigie says this, Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity the polarity and tension which characterizes certain dimensions of the life of prayer. On the one side, there is God. On the other, evil human beings. And the thought of the psalmist alternates between these two poles. He begins by asking God to hear him, but he recalls that evil persons have no place in God's presence. And so he turns back to God again, expressing his desire to worship and his need of guidance, but then is reminded of the human evils of the tongue. And eventually he concludes in confidence, praying for protection and blessing. Craigie adds that the prayer is not only for protection from wicked persons, but it's also a prayer for protection from becoming like them. Psalm 5 is another morning psalm, like Psalm 3 that we considered recently. And since the following psalm is another evening psalm, all night long I flood my bed with weeping, Psalm 6-6. We, we therefore have prayers for morning and evening, morning and evening in Psalms 3-6. through 6. Now, we're going to consider Psalm 6 next week. But this is a way of saying that our entire day, these psalms from morning to evening and evening to morning. This is a way of saying that our entire day from the rising to the setting of the sun should be prayerful. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5 that we are to pray at all times. We know that that the early church, they, they prayed. They prayed in the morning about 6 o'clock. They, they prayed at noon, about noon, and they prayed about 3 o'clock or so. And these times of prayer were set aside for devoted times of prayer. Now, today, you may not be able to pray at 6 and 12 and 3. So don't hear me say that you need to have a set time to pray. In fact, the point of the command, even in 1 Thessalonians 5, to pray at all times is that you do pray. That you do have time set aside to be intentional in your prayer lives. People read that and they think, yeah, oh, I'm supposed to pray at all times, like 24-7 a day? The goal here is to pray, to have intentional, to have purposeful times of prayer. Remember, we're, we're invited to come and summon before the throne of grace. Our lives from the, the moment we rise in the morning to the moment our heads hit the pillow, we should be living in prayerful dependence on the Lord. We should be trusting him. We should be, what that means is that we're keeping the scriptures before our hearts and before our minds. It's even, it's even interesting because 
In 1 Thessalonians, or not in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter 5, 5, we, we see after, after Peter has just given those instructions to elders, he tells us, all of us, to humble ourselves before the Lord. Actually, that's 1 Peter 5, 6. But in 1 Peter 5, 7, right after this, it, Peter says to cast all of our anxiety on the Lord because he cares for us. But the, the before, he says to humble ourselves. And so everything that he wants us to do, it starts with humility. As Augustine said, he, the Christian life is humility, humility, humility. And John Calvin said the same thing. The Christian life is humility, humility, humility. Our lives should be one of prayerful dependence upon the Lord, where we are casting our anxieties before the Lord, where we are we are keeping the scriptures before our eyes and before our hearts, because we are, as that's, that hymn says, we are prone to wander, Lord, and we feel it. We are prone to wander from the one that we love. And so being prayerful, being mindful, being intentional, being purposeful in our prayers, it, from the rising of the sun, from the moment we wake up until the moment our our pillow goes, our pe- the moment we hit our pillow, it helps us. Especially, you know what? Uh, you might have had a hard day. What better thing to end your day than spending uh, some time in focused, intentional prayer, meditating on psalms like Psalm uh, 4.8, about God's peace, or Philippians 4 8, or any other passage like 1 Peter 5 7, for example, these passages remind us that, that our lives are under the care of God, and God is He is orchestrating all things, all of history uh, is under His hand, and we can trust Him. Charles Spurgeon beautifully said, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. Devotion should be both the morning and the evening star. That means, like I said, we should be prayerful and purposeful and and intentional in our prayer lives from the moment we rise until the moment we go to bed. Now, the first three verses are an appeal of this psalm in Psalm 5 for God to listen to the psalmist's prayers. Many psalms begin this way. Psalm 1, which we considered last week as one, it begins saying, Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Psalm 5 begins this way. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. Have you ever even stopped in your prayers by been stopped in your prayers by doubts about whether you're even approaching God rightly in prayer? Almost everyone has. If you have notice what these verses are going to teach you today. They they teach us three things. First, the spirit in which we should pray. One characteristic of this prayer is its urgency expressed in the imperatives. Give ear, consider, listen. This means that David was not merely going through a prayer routine. He was intentionally serious. And all prayer is serious. This is why our prayer lives should be, and our our focused times of taking in God's word and chewing on it in meditation and mumbling to ourselves, as we talked about in 
in our Psalm 1 study, it's all to be rooted, it's all to be grounded in the Word of God. Our prayer lives are not a trite matter. We, we are approaching a holy God. We are approaching, a, yes, also a God of grace. And we need to remember under the Old Testament that, that the high priest would have had to do what? He, he had to be ritually and ceremonially clean and dressed uh, to approach a holy God one day a year in the most holy place. And now we have Christ who has once and for all time bled and died in our place and for our sin. And now this Lord, our Lord, our Savior, he summons us, Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, to the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. We should never, never, ever just treat that as another thing. We have been given grace and we can approach the throne of grace because of the king of peace, the God, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 5, the God of grace, because of the person and the work of Christ. And in the New Testament, James refers to the case of Elijah, who he says was, uh, in James 5, 17 through 18, was a man just like us, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. And James says, rightly, thinking of Elijah in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. A second characteristic of prayer is persistence, seen in the repeating phrase, in the morning, in verse 3 of Psalm 5. It carries the idea of meaning as soon as it is morning, in every morning. And it reminds us of the Lord's teaching about the unjust judge who did not want to help a poor widow, but eventually gave her justice just to escape her constant petitions. Now Jesus concludes in Luke 8, 18, 17, saying, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen one? Who will cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? His point was that we are to persist in prayer, even if for reasons unknown to us, the answer of God is delay. God will not refuse to act forever. Now, some people, they get very, how do we say it? They get very bent out of shape when, when they say this. Well, you need to persist in your prayer. <clears throat> and we need to understand that, as I said earlier, God cares. And, and just because our prayer might not be getting answered in, in the time, in the manner in which we want it, that doesn't mean that, that God is not still working. He, he works out his, his, will, his revealed will uh, despite us. And yet he chooses to use us. This is why we must pray according to Scripture and then trust God, the providence of God. We must trust God. We must trust God to act on his word in his own time. Not in our own time. That's why the psalmist we're going to see continue to urge us, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. It, why? Because waiting on the Lord, it helps us. It helps remind us we're not the sovereign. We are, we are the, the creature and he is the creator. And so we need to trust him. We need to trust him. And even if our prayers are delayed or they're not answered in the way that we want, the Lord is still caring. He is still 
sovereign. George Mueller, the founder of the great faith orphanages in England in the 19th century, saw great answers to prayer, even though some of the answers were delayed. When, when he was quite young, he began to pray for two of his friends. He prayed for them every day for more than 60 years. One was converted just before Mueller's death at what was probably the last preaching service Mueller ever held. And the other was converted within a year of Mueller's passing. Clearly, we are always ought to pray and not give up, Luke 18, 1. We're not to give up, we're to persist. We have a God who cares. We have a God who knows. A third characteristic of this prayer is an expectant spirit, which is how verse 3 ends. I wait in expectation. And this means that the psalmist was praying in faith for having laid his request before God. He expected God to answer. He expected God. He persisted in prayer knowing that God will answer him. Maybe not in the way that he wants, but he will still answer. James 1, 5-6 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt. Now, most commentators call attention to the three types of prayers in these verses. Prayer by words, inarticulated prayers or sighing, and prayer which is a cry. Most often we pray by words. We express ourselves in proper, well-reasoned terminology. Sometimes we're in such a distress that our prayers are only desperate cries for God to help us. At other times, we can't even find voice to express our feelings, to express our need. But here's the thing. God hears all of our prayers. In fact, the Psalter itself contains various types of prayer. And besides, we have the New Testament teaching that although we, in Romans 8.26, we do not know what we ought to pray, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And so in these three opening verses, David calls him, calls his Lord twice, and am I king, am I God, once. And the latter phrase reminds us of the way Thomas greeted Jesus when he saw him after the resurrection. Before this, Thomas had been told about the resurrection, but he refused to believe it. He demanded to see physical evidence. John 20, 25 says, I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were. Put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. But after Jesus appeared to him and had invited him to make the test, he had demanded, Thomas fell at his feet, exclaiming in, in John uh, 20, 28, My Lord and my God. That is the faith the psalmist shows in these verses. Notice, he says, My King and my God. They show the faith of the psalmist was genuine faith and not mere superstition. Charles Spurgeon calls these pronouns the, the pith and the marrow of the plea. Derek Kidner says the covenant relation expressed by the repeated phrases, my, gives their prayer a firm footing. On the second stanza in verses 4 through 6, it's a reflection on the wicked. It grows out of the psalm, this approach to God in verses 1 through 3. Each of the preceding psalms was spoken of the wicked, although differently in each psalm, Psalm 1 considers the way of the wicked as opposed to the way of the righteous. Psalm 2 traces the rebellion of the wicked against God, particularly that of the kings and the rulers of the earth. In Psalm 3, the psalmist has been attacked by wicked persons and asks for God to protect them. 
In Psalm 4, the wicked have slandered the psalmist, and he is asking God for vindication. And in, this, and in Psalm 5, which we're studying now, David refers to wicked people as those whose prayer the Lord will not hear, in whom he has no pleasure. David here is distinguishing himself from evil persons. He's reminding himself that he must be different if, we, if he would be heard by God. Psalm 66, 18 through 19 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But since he has not done this, the latter psalmist adds, God has surely listened and heard my voice in prayer. Today, sadly, we take sin too lightly. If we did not, we would not sin as grievously or as frequently as we do. You might have heard somebody say, maybe not as explicitly as this, but how much sin can you get away with and still get to heaven? The answer to the question is that God is a holy God. He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows when you're in the, the secret place, in the, in the bathroom or wherever you are, he sees what you do. You cannot fool him. He is a holy, all-knowing, and all-present God. And so you must be holy, and the secret to being holy is to see sin as God himself see it and draw close to him. In fact, this is what we can do through Christ. We have a new nature. We, we are clothed with Christ, and this is why Colossians 3, because of our union with Christ, we can put off and we can put on Christ. That's because we have been united to him. We can, uh, and to use Paul's language in Romans 6 and 7, we can put our sin to death because of Christ. And the more that we're drawing near to the Lord, the more that we'll do this. And this is what David himself does as he prays the second stanza. And he does it in two ways. First, he reviews the type of evildoers moving, moving from Terms that are general to those that are stronger and more descriptive. Verse 4, the wicked. Verse 5, the arrogant. Verse 5, all who do wrong. Verse 6, those who tell lies. Verse 6 says, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And so we sense that he is growing in his awareness of how sinful sin is in these verses. He's reminding himself of how God views sin. And again, the words grow in intensity. Verse 4 the, the first expression is a negative one. It points out that God does not take pleasure in evil. But this moves to the stronger expression in verse 5. You hate all who do wrong. To the even stronger one in verse 6. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. We need to say something here. And it's not a popular thing to say in the current setting that we find ourselves in in the church, but it's a good way to measure how well you're praying and whether you, as you pray, you are drawing close to God or merely just mouthing words and really saying nothing. If you're drawing close to God, you will become increasingly sensitive to sin, which is inevitable since the God you are approaching is a holy God. We need this sensitivity H.C. Lippold was thinking along these lines when he wrote, Prayer of this kind may have been more valuable than our age is inclined to admit. And he says this, explaining, They are surely born out of a deep sense of the sinfulness of sin and out of the conviction that the only one who can stem the tide of sin is the Almighty. 
One of the complaints unbelievers make against Christians is that their understanding of sin causes them to think of themselves as better than other people. But that's not actually true. In fact, it's the opposite. And the next stanza of Psalm 5 shows what really happens in Psalm 5, 7 through 8. Remember that David has approached God properly. He's been led uh, by that to reflect on the sinfulness of sin and on the fact that God will not hear the ungodly. And in these verses, he turns back to God again. If the objection of unbelievers were true, we would expect David to be saying, but I am different from the evildoers. I, I have mentioned I'm a good man, and it is because I have tried to live a good life that I ask you to hear me. Actually, he does nothing of the sort. Instead of pleading his own righteousness as grounds for coming to the Lord, he pleads the mercy of God. And he says this, But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house, and reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. This is so important, since it's by the mercy of God alone that any human being can approach a holy God. We must not forget Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was a righteous man. He prayed, and we have no reason to disbelieve him because he says in Luke 18, 11 through 12, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fasted twice a week and gave a tenth of all that I got. The tax collector who was standing at a distance did not consider himself worthy even to look up to heaven and prayed in, in Luke 18, 13, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In a situation like this, the world will always side with the visibly righteous man. But Jesus said in Luke 18, 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Craigie says, though evil persons are excluded from the presence of God because of their sin, it does not follow the psalmist is admitted by virtue of his own goodness. The psalmist's entrance into, the, into God's house would not be based upon the abundance of your loving kindness. That is to say, it was only God's grace and the covenant love towards his people which made entrance into his presence possible. In fact, verse 8 contains the first actual petition in this psalm, which means that over half have been spent on preparation. And now the request occurs. It is simply for guidance that God would lead the psalmist in righteousness and make his way straight before him. And at this point, David turns to the wicked again. Earlier, he spoke of them as, as those who tell lies. But this was only one descriptive phrase among many. In verses 9 through 10, he describes them in terms of their wicked speech or words because he had just prayed for guidance. He was thinking of how the words of the wicked cannot be trusted. But, it, but it's even worse than this situation. Their words are destructive, and those who follow them will perish. And this is why the Apostle Paul quoted part of verse 9 in his great summary of the sin of the human race in Romans 3, 10 through 18. And in that summary, he quotes four psalm passages in succession. Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 140, verse 3, and Psalm 10, 7. And then after adding a text from Isaiah in Isaiah 59, 7 through 8, he ends with another psalm quotation in Psalm 36, verse 1, which says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. And his point is that the human race is utterly and incurably wicked. Romans 3.12 says, There is no one who does good, not even one. 
Verse 10 contains the second petition of the psalm after verse 8, and it is the Psalter's first imprecatory prayer. That is, it's a prayer asking for judgment on the wicked, and prayers like this presented difficulty for many people. And for that reason, we're going to consider them in detail later where we can uh, provide more extensive examples. But in this case, it's necessary to know only that David's vexation with the wicked is not personal. In fact, few people in the Bible were more forgiving in response to personal attacks than David. Rather, his concern is that they have rebelled against God, and his request is for God's condemnation of their sin. And David asked God to condemn sin rather than justifying sinful behavior and to see to it that the strategies of the wicked fall and that they are banished while they are in such a state of rebellion. It's exactly the kind of prayer that we should be able to pray when we see the effects of evil in our fallen world. Well, the final stanza is a happy one in which the concerns of the psalmist broaden to include all the righteous. He encourages them to take refuge in God and be glad and sing for joy. He appeals for God to spread his protection over them, which a certain God will do. The last words of Psalm 5 say this, For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as a shield. And when Martin Luther was making his way to Oxford to appear before Cardinal Cajun, who summoned him to answer for his heretical opinions, one of the cardinal's servants taunted him, asking, Where will you find shelter if your patron, the elector of Saxony, should desert you? Under the shelter of heaven, Luther answered. This was a psalm of shelter, and it should be yours today. You see, this is why God hears us today. It isn't because you and I, we deserve mercy. It isn't that we deserve a God who cares for us. It isn't that we have a God uh, that we deserve a God of mercy. It's that Christ came, born under the sentence of death and fulfillment of messianic prophecy. He came and he bled and he died and he rose in our place and for our sin. And this is why Luther could say that, that the only way that he would not be deserted, the only one who would not de desert him, it's the King of Heaven, the Lord Jesus. And it's the same for you and I. The, the only reason that the Lord hears us is not because of our inherent goodness, because of our merits, or because we deserve anything. It is solely on the basis of Christ. You see, Christ lived, and he suffered, and he bled in our place and for our sin. He was perfectly sinless. That's why... Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, and Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 have a long history in, in the history of the church because these passages show that Christ is sinless. He's unlike us. We are sinners, as we've seen. We need rescue. We need reconciliation. We need to be adopted. We need to be declared not guilty. And this is exactly why Christ has come. And this is exactly why now we, who are his people, adopted and beloved by him, can approach the throne of God's grace. And we do this in the local church. We gather together in the local church to, to sit under the word, to learn what it says and what it means and how it applies to our life, both personally and corporately,
as we live together with God's people in the local church, and as we go out, we scatter from the local church to make disciples who make disciples of Christ. And so we call all men everywhere to repent and to believe on the name of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you can escape from the wrath of God. Because Jesus took your place, uh, died in your place, and for your sin, you today can repent and believe and trust in a sufficient Savior who alone can save you. And Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll be saved. So my question is, will you repent? Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and will you be saved? And even more, will, will you as a Christian, will you come before this great throne of grace that God has provided for you on account of Christ and pray expectantly? Will you persevere in your prayers? And will you remain steadfast in them? Because you know that you have a God who hears. You see, part of the reason that part of the reason that we don't persist in prayer is we don't believe God. We don't take him at his word. We get we get discouraged and so we stop praying for the person. We're praying for God to open eyes and ears to the truth of Christ. We stop praying for the church because we've been hurt by the church. And we think that somehow some way that that if we stop praying for them or stop praying for the church, that's somehow going to stop things. You see God is sovereign. God is going to accomplish the ends for which he has appointed, despite us, despite our disobedience. His plan and his purposes are going to go forward no matter what. And that's why scripture tells us again and again, no purpose of the Lord can be thwarted, not one of them. Because our God is sovereign. If, if one of his purposes can be thwarted, then he's not God. And so we must take God at his word. This is both convicting for those who think that God is not, not disinterested in us. It's also incredibly encouraging for those who are afraid of God. Because what Christ has done is he, he, he has provided a way to God. He is the only way to God. He's the only way that you can have forgiveness. He's the only way that you can have life. And this is the way that we are to go. This is the king that we are to go to. The king that we can cast our anxieties, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says. And even before that, we can humble ourselves because we have a Savior who humbled himself in every respect. And yet he never sins. And he endured he endured tremendous suffering for us in our place and for our sin and was buried and rose again. And so we can trust him. We can take him at his word and we can take it to the bank that he will hear us on account of Christ. Remember I said towards the beginning of this, what we see here is that these Psalms, we have Psalms, one through two through six. There's morning and evening, morning and evening in Psalms three through six. 
And this is a way of saying that our entire day, from the rising to the setting of the sun, should be prayerful. So you as a Christian, you should be intentional, you should be purposeful in your prayer, taking your prayers throughout the day to the Lord. Your prayers of petition, your prayers of need, your prayers for, for help from the Lord, your, and help for other people. And we should be praying for one another. Do you know that 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 even our prayers for one another is it's a shock. When we pray for others, we're showing that we really care about them. We're not just saying, hey, you know what, I'm gonna pray for you, and then we might get to it. Rather, our prayers are a reflection, not only for of our of our prayers are a reflection. Our prayers for others are a reflection of our love for them and ultimately of our love for the Lord. So if you really love the Lord, if you really want to press in and you really want to grow in your in your prayer life, take your prayers to the Lord. Take your loved ones to the Lord. Take your family to the Lord. Take your friends to the Lord. Take your church to the Lord. Take your pastors to the Lord. Take your elders to the Lord. Take church members to the Lord. Take your neighbors to the Lord. Take everyone to the Lord and pray. Pray that God might open eyes, that he might grow them in his grace through his word, by his spirit, for his glory. That the church might be strengthened, that your pastor might be strengthened as he ministers to the flock, and uh, that that the deacons might serve even more, that church members might be uh, further, uh, you know, hungry for the word preached and desirous to serve in the power that God supplies by his grace. And all, all as we come to this throne of grace provided through the death and resurrection of Christ. Because we have an ascended king. We have an ascended high priest and master. And so we come to him as his slaves in need of his grace, in need of the help that he provides. And he so abundantly, Ephesians 1, provides it. He provides it in super abundance. It abounds and abounds and abounds. And so the power of God is displayed even more in our weakness the frailty of our flesh and all for the glory of our king to the praise of God. And so may we exalt, as this text says, in God, in his goodness and his care and his provision, also that we might approach him and trust him. And let's pray now. Wow, we are reminded, Lord, today through this text, we have a God who cares. We have a God who hears. Lord, help us, whether we're going through grief, whether we're going through struggles, whether we're going through hard times, Lord, may we hear this message. And may we hear it loud and clear. May, may, may it stir our hearts. May, may you bring conviction by your Spirit where conviction is needed. And may you bring the help of your Spirit to, to help your people to walk in the grace and knowledge of your Son, Jesus. We Thank you that your word is true. We thank you that it, it, it is binding on our lives. It's for every area, for every phase of life. Help us to keep the word before our hearts and before our eyes at all times. That we might walk with you in a way and in a manner that is pleasing to you. For your glory and for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.